So Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 31, says, uh, well, first of all, back in verse 50, uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, just by way of review, just keep your finger there in, in Luke 13, 31. It said, now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go towards Jerusalem. So Jesus has been making his way towards Jerusalem, knowing that um, as he's going along his way, that he's going to experience a lot of resistance. There's a lot of things going on there. But Jesus has been making his way towards Jerusalem, coming down out of the north, going to the various cities along the way. And he's ministering in the area of Perea, which is the green on the right, kind of up and down there. Um, He's kind of by the Jordan. Right now, he's making his way down, and he's going to be going into uh, Jerusalem shortly. But as, if you notice in Luke's message, it's become increasingly intense. How many of you kind of enjoyed the story where they're kind of, they're building up to, yeah, he's the Messiah, and then the Messiah actually starts speaking. And then you're just like, whoa, what? He is just unloading double barrel shotgun, just, and also healing people at the same time. And he has no, um, he's not holding anything back. <clears throat> he is single handedly coming against the kingdom of Satan, freeing people from its grip, casting out demons, healing people. And at the same time, he is exposing the hypocrisy of the religious leaders and also the people infected by them, so to speak. And so as he is going about that road to Jerusalem, he is preaching that people must repent or they will perish. That is his his main thrust of his message. The message of the kingdom, that God is willing to extend mercy to those who repent and receive forgiveness basically from God. And his sacrifice would be the one that would make it possible to where people's sins would be able to be permanently removed. And he is warning his disciples of the leaven of the Pharisees on the way, which has infected the masses of people, that obviously their hypocrisy is an outward appearance of godliness, but inwardness, they're full of greed, they want money, they want prestige, they want power, they want people to keep um, in line with their rules that they've kind of twisted from the Ten Commandments to suit their own fleshly desires. And Jesus called the religious leaders on this and the masses that were influenced, and He's warning. And so Jesus is resolutely just pressing towards Jerusalem with intensity. And in, in, in that intensity, he is ex, He's experiencing more and more heat, more and more rejection. The crowds might be there, but they're not caring about what he is actually saying so much as whether they could get a sign or not, whether they could be healed or not. They didn't really want to have anything to do with repentance, which is what God wanted to do. Boy, that's a lesson for us, huh? God, I've come to you because I want this. And then he says, well, this is what my word demands. This is what I demand. My holiness demands repent in this area. And follow me. But what if I don't? What if you don't? Follow me. And many would turn away, even his own disciples. And so Jesus was not compromising one bit, but rather resolutely accomplishing his Father's will as Jesus makes his way. In verse 31, it says, 
At that time, some of the Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go tell that fox, I'll keep on driving out demons and healing people today, and tomorrow on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. That's his response there to Herod. The Pharisees uh, were sick of Jesus and wanted him gone. They kept inviting him to lunch, and he was a bad dinner guest. <laughs> they didn't like his, break of, his breach of protocol. And we know that they began to plot uh, Jesus' death right about this time, but the second best thing for them was to get Jesus out of their area. Just move along. Please get out. And so they told him that Herod uh, told him that Herod wanted to kill him. And this would be Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, who uh, basically built uh, many of the monuments and structures around Jerusalem. But Herod Antipas imprisoned John the Baptist because John the Baptist called him out for uh, taking his brother's wife, and he didn't like that. So he threw him in prison and eventually beheaded him. And when Herod heard of Jesus, he thought it was John the Baptist resurrected from the dead, as we read in Matthew 14, 3. And so he kept trying to get Jesus to come to him, but he would not. He never responded to him, basically, except for here. And when he was brought to him before his trial uh, in Jerusalem, a short time from when we're reading now, he, he just was silent. He didn't say anything to me. He didn't give him anything. And so, for whatever reason, Herod was that ruler over uh, Galilee and this part of Judea, that Perea we just saw, and he wanted to kill Jesus for some reason. And Jesus responds in verse 32, says, go tell that fox, keep, I'm going to keep on doing what I'm going to do. Now, Jesus called Herod a fox. Foxes are wily and sneaky, cunning pests known for their destructiveness. Anybody have foxes on their property that get into stuff? Anybody have them? Uh, some of you do. I know, I know, I think the sweets had them at one time, some other people. But they are very cunning. They're very, uh, they, they basically are known for their destructiveness. Yes, they might be cute. <clears throat> but don't let that fool you. Now, when Jesus calls Herod a name, he has every right to do so as the Son of God. We, as, um, as the children of God, are called to pray for our leaders, and we're not called to slander our leaders. Jesus wouldn't be slandering because it would be an accurate description. We are not dealing with all the information, and He can judge properly. We need to pray for our leaders. But Jesus can correctly judge them, and He did. And Jesus basically says, I'm not going to do... I'm sorry, I'm going to do what I have been sent to do until it is done, and you're not going to stop me. You're not going to stop me on my way. And by the way, surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. You threaten to kill me here, but there's no way a prophet's going to die outside Jerusalem, and I'm in Perea. That's a pretty bad uh, analogy, but that's what he's, he's saying there. He's saying that Jerusalem's a pretty bad place. That's where all the godly people die. <clears throat> and we know this because we can go back and read about um, the prophet's uh, that were killed, like at the hands of uh, Manasseh, who killed Isaiah, he saw him in two. You can read about that in Hebrews and Kings. Or Zechariah, who was stoned to death between the altar and the temple at the, king of, at the order of King Josiah. And so Jesus is, is looking at this, and he's looking as he's heading towards Jerusalem, and he begins to lament 
over Jerusalem. He begins to pour out his heart towards Jerusalem. Verse 34, it says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. And here we see the heart of God. He desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And Jesus says, how I long to gather you your children together, like a hen who gathers little chicks under herself, that the the people of God would be under the shadow of the Almighty, under His wing, under His protection, that they would come under His covering, that they would avoid the wrath and the judgment to come. God longed for that, for people to come unto Him, but they were not willing. And that's the heart cry of the gospel, that God's arms are open wide. And if people would simply come and repent and and run into the refuge, which is Christ, they would be saved. And Jesus laments, he cries. What a beautiful picture of the compassion of, of God, that he desires that people would avoid judgment. You know, I think it's very important to remember that as we are speaking about repentance so much in, in all these types of things. Why is it that God would want us to repent? Because He wants us to have life. He knows what's ahead. And He desires that we wouldn't perish eternally, but would have everlasting life with Him, and so much so that He sent His only Son to pay your debt, to pay my debt. And through faith in that, we have everlasting life. What a gracious gift God has given us. But we must repent, we must believe upon His death and resurrection. And you were not willing, Jesus says. They rejected the salvation that Jesus brought. They instead crucified the Lord of glory. They did the opposite. And as a result, when people reject Christ, when a nation rejects Christ, when when Israel rejected Christ, verse 35, Jesus said to them, Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, the term house there, your house is desolate, I believe is speaking about the Jewish people. It's speaking about the nation of Israel. They nationally rejected their Messiah, who came up through them. He was one of them. And they were to be that light into the world. The promise was given to Abraham that through him, through his seed, Jesus Christ, all the nations would be blessed. And they rejected their Messiah. And as they rejected their Messiah, they would now begin to experience the judgment of God upon them. And Jesus knew the destruction was coming upon Jerusalem. And in 66 AD, the Jews began that revolt, which ended in 70 AD when Titus, uh, the the Roman general, came and he decimated the, the city Uh, at the command of Caesar. And you can read about that in Josephus' writings in The War of the Jews, Volume 2, 1.1. Have fun with that. But Jesus knew that destruction was coming. And according to Josephus' account, more than a million people died. A million people died in that revolt. And 100,000 people were taken captive I mean, what a horrible situation. 
And if you go down through history, you see the house of Israel has been left desolate time and time again. And Jesus says to the nation of Israel, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, quoting Psalm 118, 26. Jesus said, not one stone would be left upon another. That happened. Titus came into Jerusalem and because um, basically he said to decimate the whole place, but the place was someone lit the place on fire and the gold of the temple melted into the stones and they wanted to get the gold out and they tore the rocks apart to get to the gold. Not st- one, one, fulfilling the prophecy, not one stone to be left upon another. Its destruction was total. There's descriptions of parents eating their children. It was horrible. God looked at that, Jesus looked at that and said, how I longed that you would avoid this. But you were unwilling. And this is the story of humanity. What greater show of seriousness and and, and compassion and love and extension of mercy than for the creator of all the universe whom his creation has rebelled against to send his only son who he, he knew would be rejected by them as a sacrifice to pay for their sins, that some would repent. I mean, God was serious. He is serious. And that's what church is about. It isn't about the electric guitar and all that stuff. It's about the gospel. That dead men, dead women, spiritually dead people would come to know their Savior and be changed by His grace. I don't know how we just need to lean into that. And it's a narrow message. But it's a message of love from God. And it's also a message that people would avoid judgment. And praise God, those of you who've entered in through the narrow door have received peace with God through Jesus Christ. Amen? And you rest in that. And we want everybody to come in. Now, we know that not everybody will, but that's not up to us. That's in God's sovereign hands. He knows that, but He's called His church to go be a witness, to share the message of the gospel, that those who would be saved would be saved. Amen? Let's be faithful to that. Even when the culture rejects you, just as they did Jesus Christ. And so... In Zechariah 12, there's a, there's, a, there's a place where he says, you're not going to see me again until I, you say, blessed, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, quoting that Psalm 118.26. And while there is a remnant of the Jews who, who have and do believe upon the Lord in every generation for the past 2,000 years, in general, the Jews still reject their Messiah. Um, the, uh, Paul says that there has been a a blindness put over them nationally, basically. And I know we're getting into a little bit of, of people see this differently, different places, and I understand that. But Paul pours out his heart for the nation of Israel in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. He really does. And if you, if you study Romans 9, 10, 11, you see the plan of God that while the Jews rejected Christ, it was still within God's plan for that to happen, that 
Through the rejection of Christ, the Gentiles would receive the Messiah, but through their disobedience, God would also show them mercy and eventually awaken the nation of Israel back to the Lord. And so Zechariah chapter 12 prophesies about that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered together to destroy Jerusalem in a future time, and the Lord delivers them. And just, just real quickly, I find it really interesting that Jerusalem's still around and the Jews are still around, don't you? How many other people groups can you say that about? You know, not very many, right? And they happen to be in the same little plot of land, in the same little place, same old wars, same old relatives. Pretty interesting, isn't it? Hmm, makes me think God must have a purpose in that. But there's a day when the nations will gather against Jerusalem there. And it says in Zechariah 12, verse 10, I'll read some verses for you here. It says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one who grieves for a firstborn son. And so I believe that at that time, uh, when the nation of Israel is protected and in, in given that spirit of grace and supplication, that their eyes will be opened and they will look upon Him whom they have pierced at the return of Christ, perhaps, is what I'm, I'm thinking there. <laughs> and their, their heart nationally will be turned back to the Lord. But until that day, there's a remnant, the true Israel that Paul calls them, and those receive their Messiah by faith, but in general, there's a hardening of the heart. Nevertheless, Jesus wept over that pending destruction that was coming upon them because they had rejected Him. And obviously, the fear for them should not just be for the destruction of their physical home, but what would happen to them eternally once their lives were taken from them and they faced the judgment of God. And that is the major concern, that a person, a people can harden their heart to the gospel so much to where there is a point of no return. I don't know what that is. I am not God. God knows that. To where people can say no to the Lord so much, to where they are spiritually blind, so hardened, that eventually they do not turn to the Lord. I think of Pharaoh. It says that Pharaoh hardened his heart when Moses came to him. How many times did that happen? A few times, right? It says that Pharaoh hardened his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. But then there came a time, and the very last time, it said what? And God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And when God hardens Pharaoh's heart, there's no unhardening Pharaoh's heart. I don't know how all that works, but we need to trust in God's goodness and grace. And today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day to turn from your sin and to turn Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know many of you are saved and, and born again, but that's the message in the heart that we should be preaching also to, to our lost people we love, amen, around us. And don't be afraid to be rejected. You will if you're a follower of Christ. May we have ears to hear. Chapter 14, let's move on. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, here's his first mistake, he was being carefully watched 
And there in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Some of your versions uh, say dropsy. You know, it's just the swelling of the skin. could be something with the kidneys, the lungs, or heart or something. Something's going on with this guy. It's an abnormal swelling. And there in uh, verse 3, Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, it is, uh, is it lawful on the Sabbath uh, to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. And so taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. And then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on a Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. And so Jesus, he walks into a setup. He knows he's walking into a setup. This prominent Pharisee invited Jesus to lunch on the Sabbath all, uh, along with a guy who was suffering with swelling so that they could catch him in their minds breaking uh, the Sabbath and therefore discrediting Jesus. That's what they're trying to do, is to get him to be pictured as a lawbreaker. But the laws that he was supposedly breaking were their interpretations of the law, man's commandments, not God's commandments. And it's so important for us to realize what are the commandments of God versus the commandments of men. You know, I think I've failed at this being a pastor over the years. Sometimes you, you have things in a certain view and you, you know, you, you lay something out there and it's not necessarily God's command, but you think it's good. But I also think it's really good when you communicate that, that you let no, people know, this is for me, not the Lord, like Paul does, amen? Because uh, people view people in spiritual leadership as having a, somehow a better connection from God. And what's supposed to happen is we are supposed to be broken by the Word and humbled by the Word and hopefully see God clearly and lead people in that with humility. But that's not always the case. And this person was, was deeply offended by Jesus. He was trying to catch Jesus in a trap. He didn't want him to be around. He wanted him to be discredited did, um, with him. And, you know, Jesus wasn't going to let this man suffer. I love that about the Lord. And, and Jesus asked them if it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not. And they didn't answer. I mean, they couldn't answer, could they? Either way, they're... And so Jesus heals this guy and sends him on his way. And then Jesus only stops at that. He, he points out the hypocrisy. He says, if this was your child or an ox, what would you do about it today? You would help them, wouldn't you? You know, they didn't say anything again. You know, rule number one for a Pharisee, stop inviting Jesus over to lunch on the Sabbath. You're going to be exposed. It's not going to go well for you. I mean, that's just the way it works, right? But Jesus doesn't quit, verse 7. And, and I don't know about you, but I mean, he just, you think, okay, well, that's, that's good enough, Jesus. They get the point. He goes on and tells two more stories, like, and they're all sitting around, and he just keeps going to the next level. He keeps putting it in a deeper gear, in a deeper gear, and he just keeps painting this picture for them. Verse 7, when he noticed how the guests picked, up, picked the places of honor at the table, he, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may be invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. 
Verse 10, but when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place and then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. So they're all sitting around, they're at the table and Jesus gives them this parable. And what do you think is going on in their hearts and minds? Is he talking to me? Oh, I did that. Well, who is he to judge? Me? I mean, just think of all the things that are going on. Anybody else not want to be told to where, you know, where to sit and all that good stuff? And then here Jesus points out in verse 11, for all those, and this is the really main point, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So he takes a situation that's in front of him and gives him a spiritual principle. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It is truly in our selfish nature to exalt ourselves. Anyone else have, anyone have a problem with exalting yourself? No. Some of you think you do, but you really don't. <laughs> it's, our, it's, our, it's just in our it's It's us. To give ourselves the best seat. To give ourselves the place of prominence. To go first, it's our mindset. Case in point, Black Friday. <laughs> it's coming up. I mean, have you seen what happens on Black Friday? It is, people are crushed to death. Pepper spraying each other, flat out brawling. Why? Because they want to be first. They want what they want. They're first, right? Have you seen this, these pictures? I mean, it's pretty bad. They want the best. Now, you might look at them and say, uh, well, that's them. Thanksgiving is coming up. Anybody have Thanksgiving coming up? We're going to talk more about Thanksgiving in just a minute. Where are you going to sit and who are you going to serve? Who's going to be where at the table? Who, when you get the food, are you, are you the first one to dig in or do you, are you the last one to dig in? When I'm hungry, I'm hungry, right? Anybody else say that? It's like, it's time. What about this morning? Why are you sitting where you're sitting? It's based upon other people's convenience, right? I'm not getting, I'm just, I'm saying I have to be here. (laughs) I'm in the place of prominence, you know, it's like, It's, it's the worst example of all, but, you know, is it for the benefit of others first and then your own personal preference? Or it's the sound, the lighting, what I want to hear, the air conditioning's blowing on you, all that kind of stuff. I understand. I've been there. Not very often. But I mean, we like what we like, right? When we, do when we walk into a circumstance, do we go, how can I be humble in this? How can I reflect the Lord Jesus? How can I esteem others above myself? How can I deny myself? You know, just think of that. This is why potlucks, you know, we want our elders to go first and the kids to go last. I want the seasoned saints of our church to be honored and given respect. Now, some of you might be mean or whatever. It doesn't make a difference. Just, people are messed up all over the place, the spectrum, but we want to give those who may take a little bit longer or it might be more difficult for them, give them a place of, of prominence. Amen? Is that okay? Yeah. Amen. I like that. The children can wait. Amen. Amen. 
Now, that immediately makes the parents go, oh, I've got to deal with these kids. Yes, you do. You got to. You got to hold on to them. You got to train them to be what? Humble. To be the least. And that's devastating our society. The children can wait because in learning to humble themselves, they will eventually what? Be what? Exalted. We want to teach them kingdom principles in life. And that takes self-denial and discipline. It's hard. I mean, you know, anybody with kids, it's like, oh my gosh. We need to repent from teaching our kids that they're first. Amen? It's good for them to go without everything, to be last, to be humble and humbled. It's okay. It starts with those of us who lead, though. From pastors to parents to grandparents to bosses and teachers, you name it. How can we serve those around us? If we've been given a position of power, it's for the benefit of others. That we might serve them. That's the kingdom principle, amen? And if we would just change our thinking from the world's self-evident pattern... And that whole self-first, self-exaltation to God's kingdom of the greatest is the least and servant of all, then we will find ourselves exalted by the Lord, which is what we're seeking. Amen? The Lord's blessing, the Lord's promotion. Humility should mark the life of a believer. So Jesus pointed out the hypocrisy demonstrated in the Pharisees, and this was exemplified by the people they invited. Verse 12, that's Thanksgiving. Then Jesus said to the host, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be what? Blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the what? The resurrection of the righteous. Now think about Thanksgiving. Is it a sin to have family and friends over? No, (laughs) it's not what we're saying, right? But think about and pray about how you can bless those who can't repay you. Do you think you can find some people like that around you in your life? Yeah, see, the Pharisees were constantly associating with, with the good old boys club. And they were not associating with the people that God wanted to reach. And so there should be just that heart among us. Obviously, we love our family, we love our friends and those things. But do we have a heart for the people that God has a heart for? Those who can't pay back, those who might be, you know, it might be an inconvenience to have them over. And I'm being challenged as I say this, I have no plans in mind. I have not, you know, followed through on this very well. So I'm just saying the Lord cuts everybody when you handle the sword, amen? So what would God do for us to be blessed? See, our blessing isn't in getting their response. It's when people can't give back to us. That's true in undefiled religion, the Scriptures speak. Helping widows, helping orphans. And those are just two examples. But, I mean, there's a lot of people who could be really blessed by such a wonderful body of believers like us. Just think how the love of God could be expressed in our community and to people who 
might need help. And, and just, yeah, that's going to be a little different because you don't have the relationship, but that's how you build it, amen? And that's how you share the gospel. So I think it's okay, but when are we going to be tangibly repaid for all this? What does, this, what does Jesus say? At the resurrection. At the resurrection. That requires faith, amen? If I don't believe that I'm going to be rewarded or that's not going to happen, then I'm not going to live that way or if I don't have that proper understanding. But you will be rewarded for that. And I love that about the Lord. We talked about rewards this past week in our marriage series. I love that, that we will be rewarded. Now, I know it isn't our primary motive that we would get something for doing something for the Lord, uh, but God wants you to know no, He's going to reward you anyway. That's just who He is. He's going to reward you. You will be repaid because God rewards the righteous. He will. That's just who He is. That's what He does. So as we follow the Lord righteously, as we live out these things, as we love and we do good works and we follow after Him, it's, we are storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven and rewards that can never fade, won't be uh, dismissed because your frequent flyer plan ended, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. No one's going to steal it. No one's going to hack it. It's there. And I love that. God will repay you at the resurrection of the righteous. There's two resurrections, the one at the righteous, where the righteous will be brought before the judgment seat of Christ, I believe the Bema seat of Christ, the mercy seat of Christ, where we will be judged for what we have done in the body, no doubt. All of our motives will be brought before the Lord, and I believe Peter talks about there will be fire at that moment, and things will be exposed for what they are, and our motives will be tried before Him and in, in Basically, the wood, hay, and stubble will be burned up before him. And if those precious rubies and types of stuff like that are left, the good motives, the good works that were done in faith, the pure motives and all that type of stuff and obedience, those things will be rewarded. That's the judgment seat of Christ for the righteous. But there's also the great white throne judgment. And this is the judgment of the wicked. It'll be the second death, so to speak. Someone dies once, then they get judged and thrown into the, into the lake of fire, and that will be the second death the Scriptures teach. And so that is a place where just as the righteous were rewarded for what they've done, the wicked will also be repaid for what they have done to varying degrees. Because God is a just God, some with few blows, some with many blows. And they will suffer forever according to their sins. And so we anticipate the mercy seat of God, the judgment seat of Christ, where we will be rewarded for how we live righteously as we live lives that demonstrate faith in Christ by following in His footsteps. And really, this is a picture of the kingdom of God uh, where the self-reliant, self-sufficient, self-exalting will be removed from the table and the humble and the broken who have received Christ will be given a seat of honor at the table. Isn't that interesting, a picture there? Jesus is speaking on a couple different levels. But verse 15, when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. Now, this was not in agreement with what Jesus was saying. This person was was saying that we're going to be there. After all that Jesus had said, he's just saying, yeah, blessed is the person who eats at the table of God. Like, yeah, uh, we're in there, buddy. We got this. 
we're going to eat there. We're going to chow down. And Jesus tells another parable. See what I'm saying? It's like people give one word, Jesus gives a story. People give one word, Jesus gives a story. It's like, so what's the lesson? You're going to get a story. Verse 16, and Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. You've got this king who's in, is giving this incredible banquet and he's got specific guests in mind. He says, come, everything is ready. How awesome. Verse 18, but they all who had been invited basically all began to make excuses. I can't come because I'm working. I can't come because I'm tired. I can't come because I'm busy. Whatever it is. Anybody else had those excuses lately? Me too. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. And another said, I have just bought five yoke uh, of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. And still another said, I got married, so I can't come. And the servant came back and reported this to his master. And the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the towns and bring the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there's still room. And then the master told the servant, go out into the roads, in the country lanes, go to Walla Walla and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Verse 24, I tell you, not one of those who were what? Invited will get a taste of my banquet. Heavy teaching. The people who were supposed to be there, the Pharisees, the Jewish nation, they made excuses. The religious leaders, they rejected the gospel. And so in that rejection, God extends the message, the invitation, the salvation to the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, the Gentiles perhaps. You, me. And there's still room. There's still room. Room for more to receive Christ and come and eat at that wedding banquet of the Lamb. So go out into the roads. Go out into the lanes and compel them to come in so that this house will be full, church. There's more room in the kingdom. And we are to go and to compel those in the world to come. And so go in to the despised. Go into the lame, the broken, the rejected of the world. Go and give them the message of the kingdom arms open wide, that through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, they can be saved and have a place in the kingdom, become sons and daughters of God by grace. Invite them into the kingdom at the request of the king. Be servants. Go and do his will. And there's going to be those who make excuses. You know that, right? Jesus says, I tell you, not one of those invited will get a taste of my banquet, but for the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, 
We want to thank you for this passage of Scripture that is... If I were sitting at that table, Lord, I, I'm sure I would, like many of us, Lord, just instead of being convicted in turn, I would harden my heart and start saying reasons why you're all wrong. Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to see ourselves for who we are. And I want to thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for that you take hypocrites and you, and you make them sons and daughters of the king and you change us from the inside out and you make us walk in the truth and light. Thank you that you take thieves and make them givers. Thank you that you take people who have been unfaithful and you make them faithful. A work of your sweet spirit in the lives of undeserving people. God, it's so good. Thank you for saving sinners like us. And now, Lord, as your church, we by faith are going to go and to live our lives in such a way that others might see that there's room in the kingdom. And we ask that you draw those this week who are going to be called to your name and that you use us. Lord, may your spirit rest upon your church. We pray not only for our little fellowship, Lord, but all the other churches that are gathered in the valley in your name. We ask that you would strengthen them. You would fill them with your joy. Lord, that you cause them to hunger and thirst for righteousness. They would dig into the word and live it out. And that together as the body of Christ, we would continue to call out and to paint this beautiful picture of Jesus before the lost, that many would come to repentance and would come and become brothers and sisters. Lord, work on our family members that we're going to see maybe at uh, Thanksgiving, Lord. Provide opportunities, Lord. We want the lost to come to you. We just want to thank you for this day and this time. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.